Hello and welcome to Talking Law. I'm Sally Penny, MBE, a barrister Kenworthy's Chambers, Manchester, and the founder of Women in the Law UK. On this podcast, you'll hear leading barristers, judges, solicitors, managing partners, and more talk about their lives and careers in the legal sector. This episode is supported by CBRE, leading global provider of commercial real estate services and investments. Find out more at cbre.com. Before you meet today's guest, a reminder that Women in the Law UK annual dinner and conference will be held in Manchester this November. Tickets now on sale. Find out more at womeninlawuk.com. I'd love you also to watch my recent TED talk where I discuss whether love can conquer hate. Please head to ted.com and search for Sally Penny. Today, I'm talking law in an interview with lawyer and businesswoman, Margaret Casey Hayford, CBE, a woman passionate about creating diversity on boards. Previously, Margaret was Director of Legal Services and Company Secretary for John Lewis Partnership for nine years. Before that, she worked for 20 years with city law firm Denton's, where she had been a partner. I began by congratulating Margaret on her CBE, which she received in the Queen's Honours a couple of years ago. <laughs> yes, that's right. I was fortunate enough to be given an award. I always thought you had one, to be honest, uh, Margaret. I think I used to call you Dame Margaret. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I think that when it happened, I was like, oh, oh, I just assumed you had one for all your brilliant work. But Margaret, can we go back to the beginning and what was your um, CBE for? And then I want to go back to chart your legal career, really, and indeed what you're doing now. My CBE was for uh, my work in charity and in promotion of diversity. So in essence, um, when I came to the end of my term as chair of Action Age UK, uh, I was given it at that point. So I'm assuming that it was uh, a reference to that. But I mean, in a way, that's a little bit embarrassing because really you're just the recipient of an award that is, is, is ought to be shared with a huge range of people, you know, all the fantastic people that I've worked with in the charities that I've been involved with, um, Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital, the Jeffrey Museum, Action Aid UK. You know, I've just, I've just been incredibly fortunate. And the diversity work, I mean, I've been promoting uh, women um, and, and trying to give them support to women and, and also people of ethnic minority backgrounds and LGBTQ community for years and I feel really passionately that nobody should be marginalised. So yes, I think it was in recognition of those different strands of who I am and what I've been promoting for years. Brilliant. Well, Margaret, let's go back to the beginning because you started life at the bar and then you went in-house as a solicitor. Are you from a family of lawyers? How did you become a barrister who then became a lawyer? Uh, well, to be honest, there were a number of lawyers before me in the family, so it wasn't terribly imaginative. I mean, I actually wanted to be a ballet dancer um, for a long time. I, I, I told my mother I wasn't going to go to university. I wanted to go to dance school, and she wasn't very impressed by that. But um, then I decided, yes, she was right. It would be a great profession to be to, to enter into. So um, I went off to Oxford and read jurisprudence and followed in the family of tradition. But 
as I say, it, it wasn't very imaginative because my grandfather set up chambers in Accra yeah. and members of the family, like my grandfather, my uncle Archie, qualified as barristers in the UK and then returned to Ghana to join the family chambers. But my father decided that law wasn't for him. Mm-hmm. So even though he read law, uh, um, studied law, he, he retrained, requalified as an accountant. And that's the reason why my immediate family stayed here. But then something in the genes, I suppose, led me to back to the law. Absolutely. Um, but, but my family had a propensity for political involvement as journalists, activists, commentators. And knowledge of the law is something that I've always thought was a good basis for creating change. So for me, it was I just found it really exciting to really take a focus on the areas of the law where it impacted on the, the state, it, it impacted on individuals' lives. And so planning and development, administrative law, local government law, central government law, you know, um, all of that side of things really, really, I find very exciting. So uh, that that was great. But I have to say, my father leaving the tradition sort of freed up the next generation, which is how my brother Joe went into fashion, set up the Casey Hayford label that his son Charlie's taken over um, since Joe died. And Peter went into television. He became unit manager on Panorama. He co-founded 2020 Television um, after he left Panorama. And Gus um, became a cultural historian and um, he became executive director of one of the Smithsonian um, uh, museums. And now he's here setting up um, the uh, V&A East as, as wow. executive director, which is really wonderful. So my father sort of opened the door for other opportunities for the next generation. My cousin, Michael, um, who also read law, he then went into filmmaking. So he was really pleased about that, you know, sort of break of because <laughs> he was Archie's son. So, yeah, wow. it's, it's, it's a, it, there's a sort of legal dynasty, if you like. So I, I was probably the least boring of, sorry, least interesting of my generation. So it's just... <laughs> Well, I don't know about that when one looks at your your career. Um, Margaret, tell me, you are um, the first black female partner in the city and certainly were. And that's historic. But when you came to the bar, firstly, why did you leave the bar to go and become a solicitor? And what was it like all all those years ago? Um. It began with being, being being a barrister in a, an administrative uh, law set of chambers. I was at four or five Grazing Square. Four or five Grazing Square was actually really interesting because whereas most of the chambers that focused on administrative law um, were solely that or that, you know, the planning side attached to a sort of a landlord and tenant side, so very fo- focused on property development, four or five Grazing Square had the commercial side, so it was administrative law and commercial, which I think is wonderfully rounded, and I love that mix. Um, but, um, I mean, really, it was just, for me, incredibly daunting. I I was like a, a, I was like a rabbit in the headlights. I, I think I'd aspired to it for such a long time that I built it up in my head, and it became bigger than I could handle. So I... I went into working as a solicitor, still in an administrative law, focusing on planning and development. So still the same area of law. And the funny thing was that I did advocacy in planning inquiries. So in other words, my the range of my work was the same, 
but it yes. just felt more manageable. It just felt less daunting. And it was it's interesting because, you know, now as Chancellor of a university, I, I stand on my trotters and talk to the students every year at, at the graduations as chair of the Shakespeare's Globe. And I give talks all the time. Um, and, you know, I don't find any of that daunting. And I think that it was just, it was just at the wrong time in my life. And I could probably have gone back into you know, being a barrister later yes. and really, really enjoyed it and found it much less daunting. But at the time, I, it just got too big for me. And I was just completely just overwhelmed by it. Um, yes. So it was right for me to step away from it because I'd have been completely useless. <laughs> I doubt that very much. <laughs> then I went into Denton's and uh, we built a, a, a planning team that was incredibly strong. And, um, you know, we became known as, depending on which legal chart you looked at, we were either first or second for years, you know, in, in terms of the best in the, in, in the country the best planning and development team. So that was wonderful. And as a leader of a team like that, I was immensely proud of my colleagues and the work that we did. And we had some terrific clients. And so that was that was a really exciting thing to do, to build a brand, to build a reputation, because planning itself wasn't really very much of a, a, a subject or a draw when I first went into planning. And we, yeah. we sort of put planning as a concept on the map, which was just great. That was really exciting. And, and I... I did that for 20 years and then I and a number of our clients were retail clients yes um so I, I developed quite a, a knowledge of retail and so when I was asked whether I would go into the John Lewis partnership as director of legal yeah I just thought oh my goodness why not such a great organization high ethics retail which was you know pretty much in my DNA <laughs> so I went to do that I did that for nine years and um, basically I retired after what was in effect 30 years as a lawyer. And, and that's when I developed my portfolio career. And I was asked whether I'd throw my hat in the ring to be chair of Action Aid UK. And I thought, well, I'll, it's worth a try, but I didn't think I'd land the role for one, one second. Um, and I couldn't believe it when I got it. I was so thrilled because, again, the ethics that I espouse, the ambition to try to make the lives of others better or help others to make their own lives better, was just everything that I wanted to do. So I was so thrilled and I just really loved the, um, being at the helm of the game, a wonderful organisation. Yeah, I just think I've been incredibly lucky. I suppose the thread there was high ethics organisations trying to do the best they could. Yes. And being part of that was really empowering, energising and just made it you know, worth getting out of bed for. So that was fantastic. But also the, the fact that being on a board, you're really governance focused. And that's something that's always dear to my heart, you know, just getting the governance right. So you're doing things properly, trying to make sure that you're doing things with integrity. Um, so that means a lot to me as well. You make it sound so, so easy, but let me remind you, you were chair of the Library and Information Association, commissioner of the Rose Commission, ex-director of the NHS uh, England. I wonder if you might have forgotten some of these. Uh, uh, member of the Board of Trustees of Radcliffe Trust. You know, lots of really interesting things. 
uh, gosh, Great Ormond Street. And then you've, you've been judging and mentoring hundreds of people because we know each other because of Forward Ladies, an organization which is trying to push female entrepreneurs and female uh, businesswomen. But it's not just been legally focused, has it, your career? And, you know, you could have sat on the boards of law firms, for example, but you haven't done. I just wonder where that drive came from and perhaps, you know, any advice you might have for um, women and men who are thinking about portfolio careers beyond the law or alongside the law? Well, first of all, I have been on numbers of organisations. I've been incredibly lucky because I've been asked to do so many interesting things. And I I actually, I like a challenge. So when I'm asked to do something that's really exciting, um, th- th- my first thought is to say, yes, I'll give it a try. And then <laughs> just do as much homework as I possibly can to make sure that I can actually accommodate it um, and do it, do it, you know, do it to the best of my ability. But being on, the, on, on, for example, a member of the, the Rhodes Commission, considering whether the statue of Cecil Rhodes ought to stay or, or not, yeah. those sorts of activities are because I think that I want society to be the best it can for everybody within it. And I recognise that there are some tasks that are really challenging, that, but somebody needs to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I'm really happy to help out with that sort of task. And um, organisations like the British Council, you know, the review of the British Council, I love the British Council. My mother worked for the British Council. So we grew up understanding its reach and its its importance, almost a sort of public PR person as well as educator about Britain um, and um, the links that it has with Commonwealth and beyond. Um, to me are really important. So I you know, it was a it was a privilege to be part of that. The Libraries Association asked me to review the diversity as it impacted on um, two of the oldest awards um, for children's books, the Carnegie and Greenaway Awards. And I I just thought, well, my goodness me, that is huge because if children are reading books that don't actually represent them or um, they can't see themselves, or if writers from diverse backgrounds, whether you know, they're gay writers, whether they're female writers or ethnic minorities, are not actually having the same opportunities, or in fact, male writers, because I think that in numbers of categories, male writers don't fare as well as female writers. And so it, it, we should all have an opportunity to say what we would like to say, and so, so that audiences can have the widest possible range of voices to choose from or to see themselves in. So that for me was absolutely just gold dust. I loved being chair of that enterprise. And so so the portfolio side of my career has really been to try to create a society, there's a sort of society that gives opportunity for people to be their best. And that's really, really what I, I strive for. And that came out of um, the fact that I realised that I'd had a relatively privileged background. I went to good school, went to what well, I think was the best university. <laughs> um, and I, I, you know, I just think that if you've had 
a good grounding and that you know went into a good career, then the best you can do is to give other people an opportunity to to make the best of themselves. You, you know, you've got to send the lift back down, as they say. Yes. Um, so, so that's really that's been my impetus. Um, and it's even my impetus when I go onto boards, the type of boards that I choose to go onto are the ones that have reach, the ones that have integrity, the ones that are trying and striving yes. to, 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 to improve society for others. So, so that's the backdrop. And then what I would say is to those who want to go onto boards is that you have to remember that you're going on with your particular skill. And whether it's IT, finance, marketing, law, whatever it is, yes. that's why you're there. But you're not there to be operational. And that's actually quite, that's quite a tough thing for it people, is. Yes. people to think about that. Oh, my goodness, it's a different category. of, of uh, I'm there to be strategic and supportive and challenging, not rolling my sleeves up and getting stuck into the detail and trying to you know, deliver the operation. So once you've got your head into that mindset, then you, you will be able to analyze, guide, challenge and support ap- appropriately. And then, of course, you've got to demonstrate good judgment and integrity. But uh, it's huge fun. And it's just so essential, really, because if you're actually at the coalface and delivering, it's so useful to be able to have somebody who's actually standing to one side and able to give you a view on things that you might not necessarily see because you're yes. too close to, to it yes. um, or to challenge you if, you, if, if, if you're if heading off in a direction and you haven't necessarily asked yourself the right questions. It's really, really valuable to have that outside perspective. So I would encourage anyone who has a talent to take that onto another enterprise. But the other thing is that you get a lot back because you actually learn a lot from being amongst others um, who've been there and done it. You also, um, in being in that governance role, you find out a lot more about how you might actually do your own day job better. So the sooner you start, the better it is because it actually helps you with your own operational activities and ambitions yes. and delivery. So that it's a two-way thing. It's not just that you're giving, you're also getting an enormous amount. I mean, I never cease learning as I am on as I do on boards. And for that reason, I love it as well, because you just it's just perpetual growth, which is really exciting. Really exciting. And do you know what? Because I sit on a number of boards, school governor, uh, which I suppose is a as a board, of course, uh, but the theatre the housing board. And so I'm glad you said that about, you know, doing it, it assists one's own day job if you like uh, at the bar and I know a number of barristers and solicitors who who do the same so it's really useful and I am an ambassador for women on boards I'm always keen for lawyers especially to to start um, their portfolio career or net career as as soon as but I wonder if we can move on to um, the university students your Chancellor of Coventry University And I think that's amazing because I follow you, you know, you're at the graduations, you're giving speeches, you're really encouraging. And from that aspect of your career, really, don't worry, I'm not going to carry on reading all your amazing achievements. (laughs) From the university side, what, what advice would you have for young people, you know, wanting to enter a career in law or anything for that? matter. Any advice or tips for a career in law for those who perhaps are aspiring to enter? Um, I think probably the best thing that one could expect 
or advise young people these days is to be resilient um, because you, the world is changing so quickly. You don't know what's coming. I mean, who would have anticipated any of what's happened over the last couple of years? So you've got to think about how you're going to be, bounce back from adversity. You've got to think about being flexible, therefore. So in other words, um, if you have a chosen path and external activities, external operations, external um, environmental changes deflect you from that, you've got to think about um, just how best you can bounce back. What is it you've learned from that and how will that enable you to move off in a different direction? In other words, you can't just sit there licking your wounds. You've really got to think about um, how flexible you can be. And for that reason, I think that trying to be more interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary rather than univalent is really key for this generation. Um, no one can be just one thing. And, and I, I know I'm, I'm actually preaching to the converted. So many young people I talk to these days are not only focusing on a specific career. You'll find out that they've got their own little sideline that they're also building, which yes. is so impressive, but is actually the right thing to do because we don't know that the profession that you're focusing on now is going to be there in five years. Um, there is almost no profession that won't be streamlined or changed by algorithms yes. in due course. Yes. And if that happens and you find that you've suddenly got to go off in a different direction, it's great if you've actually been thinking about where that might be, what that might look like, how you might shape your future differently. I think we're all going to have to be creatures of portfolio. We're all going to have to be really, really versatile yes. and quick to change. So agility flexibility are really going to be important reading around your subjects and subjects of um, those with whom you come in contact whether it's your suppliers whether it's um, those to whom you sell whether it's uh, your clients really really read around their subject because one of the really key things about work the work environment is people are buying into you they're not just buying your skills. They want to know that you're a good person to be with, to work with. And the best way to do that is to demonstrate that you've actually done your homework about who they are and what they're doing so that you can engage yeah. with them on a slightly deeper level than just, this is what I deliver. Um, and that's, you know, it's that engagement. And I, I, I do remind students that every year, thousands of people are coming out of university with the same qualification as you. So yeah. you're literally one of thousands. So what is it that's going to make you special? And it is that ability to uh, bring something deeper. That something deeper can also be what makes you a fun person. So, I mean, if you are a musician as well as you know, your professional role, um, or if you are really into sport or you know, whatever it is that you're, you're really passionate about, mm horticulture and whatever it is take that into your work so that you can talk about it with your clients who knows you might be talking to a client who has shares the same passion or yes. might be converted by your passion um so that you know that's all it's all really what makes you an interesting person and not um dull so and so so that's really really important in don't lose sight of yourself and and then finally I would say in not losing sight of yourself, your friends and your family are 
the most important part of your life. So don't become all work um, because one day the work won't be there. Yes. Um, and you need to, to know that there's more to you. There's more than, than, than you have given of yourself to them so that they want to want still to be with you and to be part of you. And not only that, if you have a really torrid and dreadful time at work, which could easily happen, it's great to be able to go away and go home and be with your friends and family because they will be your strength. Yes. Well, that's such such great advice because, of course, we all forget that. But that leads me nicely to asking you about well-being. And, of course, on both branches of our profession, including paralegals and silex and so on, it's long hours and there's an easy tendency to burn out. So I wonder what you've done for well-being what would you like to do you mentioned ballet earlier and I can see actually you've got a wonderful posture about you which is why of course my yeah my daughter's like I don't want to do ballet anymore I'm like you're going because you need to have a better posture <laughs> than me so I don't know if, if you're still uh doing um any ballet at all to look after your well-being but how do you relax and what do you do for kind of you know mental health and, and well-being and agility and wellness really uh, good question. Even now to this day, I do a ballet class. Uh, wow, I was right. Yeah, it's absolutely a wonderful <laughs> one. It, it's really interesting because the other women in the class, we're all of an age. We've sort of grown old together. <laughs> I noticed that, 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 that our teacher actually, um, particularly after, if we've had a break for a holiday, she'll say, now, now ladies, I'm going to take us easily we're going to have an easy class today and take we'll go then we'll gradually build up over the term back to to strengthen and so she she recognizes that we're not as agile as we were but it but even so it's that that moment when you can just be yourself and it's just the time for yourself is so important so so there's that i play the cello really badly not in concerts not for anybody else just because i love the sound of it it's a wonderful instrument and I've been so fortunate. I've had great teachers in the past. And then I love my garden. I spend a few minutes here and there rushing around madly, trying to keep on top of the of nature. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then I try to cook. Um, I Yeah, I mean, there are little bit things that I do here and there that yeah. are just away from work. But I have to say that I suppose I'm a bit of a workaholic, but that's because I I do things that I enjoy that are around the work. So if I'm, if I'm working on a specific paper, I'll read around the subject because the investigation of wider areas that are tangential to the subject itself, yeah. I find really interesting. And I have to be really quite strict with myself not to go off to down too many rabbit holes of investigation because otherwise I never leave my desk and that's why it's really good to have these punctuations like the dance class yes. um, that you know you're routinely having to do to take yourself away from work and that as far as well-being is really important and then we've got a dog so my, oh. husband and my daughter we walk the dog and he's just got the gorgeous soppy personality um um, we love walks in the countryside and just, just that's just divine. And you know, because even though it rains all the time, it's just incredibly <laughs> beautiful. 
<laughs> You're only saying that. You should try living in Manchester, right? You know, every time I come to London, I'm like, wow, look at the sunshine. Absolutely. But, Don't forget, I'm on the board of the co-op, so I go up. Of course, the, yes, the you know. Well, you uh, can't moan about the rain ever again. You're just <laughs> thinking, thinking about your heritage of sunny, sunny climates of Ghana and beyond. That's why you're moaning about the, the, the weather. Uh, in fact, today it stopped raining in Manchester. And what about, Margaret, books? Do you read um, a lot? Have you got a favourite book perhaps you could share because we've got a book club, so we're always looking for good books or a, a book that's a, a favourite of yours and why? And then a legal character. I'm going to ask you about a favourite legal character. <laughs> Can't say Rumpel because that's mine. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, so, yes, I mean, music, reading, politics, theatre, of course, with the Globe. You know, I see every production at the Globe. I love theatre as well. So the, I, my passions are wide, but I do like reading enormously. And I have to say, I'm going to be naughty here because I'm, I'm going to say that my favourite book is my grandfather's book, Ethiopia Unbound. Not just for the obvious reason that he, it was written by my grandfather, but also because it is, according to the publishers, the first novel published by fictional novel, a black African. It was published in 1911. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know whether that's that's correct, but uh, that it's the first, but it, it was pretty early. And uh, essentially, he tells the story of a, a young Cambridge graduate who's um, African heritage, basically his experience and what that does to him. And when he goes back to Ghana, um, and meets a former friend and colleague from Cambridge who's white and, and notices the way in which the white character treats him. Mm. And so that, that sort of highlights to him the way in which he's subjugated his own heritage. Yes. Um, and so he then starts to think differently about how we ought to be proud of our heritage. And he called it Ethiopia Unbound because at that stage, Ethiopia was the only country in Africa that wasn't yet colonized. And he was basically urging the whole of Africa to come out from under colonization and to recognize the importance of our own heritage. Yes. Um, and he uses classical analogies, talking about Roman and Greek influences and talks about draws analogies with our own influences. And it's a it's a powerful little tome. It's not very long mm. uh, but it says so much and in such an easily readable fashion because it's written as a novel yes um, and it, it's a beautiful little book and basically during lockdown revisited it I hadn't read it for something like you know, 25 30 years and then during lockdown I revisited it and I just felt so proud and so so that's the book I'm going to refer to brilliant <laughs> Now, did you ask me about my favorite? Was it fictional yeah, character? Yeah, and I'm not going to go the Atticus Finch way. Oh, I right. say, um, I, I, you're, oh no, you're probably too young. When I was young, there was a series called Paper Chase on the television. Oh, and right. It was um, the, the the lawyer was a professor called Charles Kingsfield. And Charles Kingsfield was played by this incredibly sort of crotchety old um, actor called Houseman. Ah, um, I'm, I'm going to look this up. I'm writing it down. John Houseman. And it, it, it was brilliant because basically um, it was a story about a, a first year law graduate and the graduate's 
sorry, undergraduate, um, and he just his life at, at, at law school, Harvard Law School, and how this incredibly demanding contract law tutor basically gave him a code for life through his legal teaching. And I remember, if I remember rightly, and I, I, it's, it's such a long time ago, I think the young chap had a, had a, a crush on um, Professor Kingsfield's daughter, and Professor Kingsfield didn't think very much on, of that. Of, of that, and uh, but he tried, he tried to teach the young people just basically, as I say, just sort of lessons for life through legal interpretation, and there was always integrity at the back of it. And he tried to make them put the work in. He wouldn't spoon feed them, and then there was always this point about self reliance and dignity. And I just thought it was wonderful. And I just remember looking at this and thinking, oh, my goodness me. Yes, I do want to be a lawyer after all. So, <laughs> But then I have to say that there are others because I, I loved Harvey Specter in Suits. He was just oh, yes, yes. and sharp and witty and you know, these incredible one-liners and a bit of a loner. And I just remember it being in the city and these in, in the uh, – early 90s when all these incredible steel and glass buildings were going up with this transparent lift and and um you know, when we moved into our build, new building with the atrium and the yeah. trees and in the city and it was all so chic and Harvey Specter in suits reminded me of those days at Denton's and then of course Ali McBeal yes absolutely young strong female professional who was a little bit flaky but tried yes. to conceal the flakiness and she again she wore sharp clothes and and I was really lucky because my brother Joe is a fashion designer I used to wear his his incredible suits and ah. and so I felt very sort of Ali McBeal and tottering about on in ridiculously high heels and oh I, lo- I love that I mean I, I mean <laughs> Between Joe and, you know, um, Os- Oslang um, Boateng. I mean, honestly, that's my dream. Uh, you know, I probably have to stop being at the bar and do more Pilates to fit into any of those now, you know, three children later. But I can picture you now, very smart, looking great. But the, the, the lovely thing about Ellie McBeal was sometimes she got it horribly wrong. So yeah. she, she was a little bit chaotic. Sort of the, sort of the young engineer trying to balance a, a woman's private life with a legal career. And, and again, there was always that bit of the juggling and the quiet sort of panic in the loo when you yes. say, oh, did I really <laughs> say that? Okay. And, and um, you know, so there was that real reality of, of not always getting it right, which is completely brilliant and absolutely all of us. And yes. so, yes, yeah, so I think, I think, um, I, uh, forgive me for having three fictional lawyers. I'll know. let you off. I'll let you off. You've got a CB and uh, you're, the black, you're the first black partner. So that, that's the main reason. Um, but, you know, Margaret, tell me, um, one of the things you're brilliant at, if I may say so, is using your platform, you know, using your voice. And you've done a TED Talk, um, which is amazing. I've seen it. Uh, it's brilliant. Um I'll, I'll link it to this, actually. Oh, that would be lovely. But you also use the social media platforms um, yes. very well. LinkedIn primarily, I think, but I see you on Twitter now and again. Yes. And I just wonder, you know, when did you decide to use your voice and use the modern technology um, for good, 
you know, often you're just sharing positive stories. Sometimes you're calling out stuff on diversity issues and DNI initiatives. Uh, and I really like it, but I just wondered because there are other people who could do that. Perhaps they don't or they're not comfortable or they don't know how. So how did that come about that you were using, you know, beyond the TED talk, but using the modern ways to use your voice on the platforms? It actually started when I was at Denton's because essentially I, on one occasion, we went for a job and the uh, client got us down to a short list of two and then we didn't get it. And so when we asked for feedback, the client said, well, we'd heard of the other practice and we hadn't heard of you. And that was all that was in it because in the end we couldn't decide because you know you were both excellent. And I thought, oh my goodness me, that will never happen again. We have to build our brand. So I set about doing talks, writing articles, speaking with journalists and so on. And that's really what started it. I just thought you have to build your brand to make sure that people listen to you so they, they, so that you, they know who you are and what you're doing and what you can do. And gradually I realized that, that also once people have heard about you, they are more likely to listen. And if you then do have the platform, you can use it for other people who don't have a voice. Yes. So yes. that's where it started. And I, I have to say that being able to use the platform for those who don't have a voice is the best thing that you can do because there are so many voiceless people and life can be so cruel to the voiceless. So you know, if you've got the privilege and ability to speak out, then why not do that? So so yeah, that I, it's been very deliberate and, and I just, in a way, just rue the fact that there aren't enough hours of the day. Yeah. And I know that, that if I worked in a, in, you know, for an organization, I could have a team of people. Doing it, yes. Doing it yes. I have to do it all myself, so I can't do as much as I'd like, which is you know, really why I'm not on Twitter as much as I, I perhaps ought to be, because it just takes up too much time and I've got yeah, work to do. It does. But, um, but yes, I mean, you're, you're right. I do, I do use the media because it's a way of getting things out quickly. Yes. Yes. Um, and to a wider group of people than I might otherwise if I was just standing up and speaking. Because if you stand up and speak, you speak to the 50 people in the room. If you put something online, if it resonates, it goes to everybody else who wants to share it. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Uh, well, we're hearing you now. I think there's 110,000 people who listen to this uh, globally. Yeah. And I'm not very good at measuring anything. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we, we can hear you loud and clear, Margaret. Um, uh, although it says you and I talking as if we're having a coffee, isn't it? But Margaret, tell me, um, earlier when I asked you about the Board of Action Aid and some of the earlier boards in your career, and you said... You know, I just said, yes, why not? I didn't think I would get it. And it made me think about imposter syndrome and some of the other kind of issues that we've kind of talked about in the background. And you were saying, you know, uh, just then you were talking about brand and remembering, you know, people are buying into you, you know, what's special about you. Uh, and they're all really great advice. And I just wondered if you've suffered from imposter syndrome, because you seem to be very confident, strategic, go-getter, but actually, you know, we don't often talk about it. And imposter syndrome can act as a catalyst. You know, if someone says, you can't do this. I know for me, when I was told I had an interview for a scholarship, you can't, you can't become a barrister or black. 
I thought, what the hell? Can't swear on my own podcast. I didn't say that. <laughs> polite. Yes, very polite. But and the chap was talking about privilege. He was saying, I've got a privilege you haven't got, and you possibly couldn't. And that acted as a catalyst for me, or one of the catalysts. So I wondered yeah, if they're we... two separate things, though, aren't they? I mean, if, yeah. if imposter syndrome is something that's self-inflicted and that you think to yourself, Oh my goodness, I can't possibly do this. And certainly I do have that. And in fact, to a ludicrous extent, um, not too long ago, I was asked whether I would uh, take on a specific role. And I thought, oh, yes, I'd love to do that. And then they told me what the uh, salary was. And when I saw the salary, I thought, oh, crikey, they're expecting somebody mighty. And that's not me. So I deselected myself. And I was talking to someone else later on and laughing about it and saying, you know, I just couldn't possibly have done it because you know, there's this socking great salary attached to it. And they said, you're mad. You would have been able to do that. And for, you know, this was someone whose judgment I respect. And so I was really upset with myself. that I deselected and I thought I should have left it to someone else to decide. And so imposter syndrome certainly followed one around and, I, and, it, and it dogs everything. But quite separately from that, there is the, the detractor. And the detractor is the greatest spur of my life. Um, like you, if somebody tells me I can't do something, yes. and if, I, I think that they're doing it, they're, they're just disparaging me because I'm a woman or because I'm black or both, I will do it. <laughs> and yes, I will why? do it to the best of my ability and I will show you. Yeah. Um, so, yes, uh, I think they're two separate things and they, they act in, in totally different ways and certainly the detractor is the greatest inspirer, um, the greatest inspiration, the greatest motivator of my life. Yes, yes. Well, Margaret, we're kind of coming to the close um, uh, of our interview. I mean, we could talk forever, to be honest, uh, and I hope you'll come back because I'll find more reasons to have you back, I'm <laughs> sure. But I wonder what's next. You've become a governing venture of um, the Honourable Society of Grey's Inn, like myself, and we're so thrilled, pensions thrilled to have you um, uh, there and another woman, in the words of Lady Hale, um, which is brilliant. Um, so I just wonder what's next. You know, Lord Reed has been talking about still there's an absence of an ethnic minority in um, the Supreme Court. They're down to one woman again. Um, Lady Rose, again, uh, a, a venture grazing. Uh, but I just wonder what's next for you, Margaret. Have you, is there a book? Are you thinking about the bench or I don't know, what, what's the future holding? But oh, are you just um, content and want to carry on doing what you're doing so brilliantly? Um, I'm very fortunate uh, in what I'm doing, both with the Globe and with Co op. Oh, and also with Chance- Chancellor Commentary. I've got um, yes, I know. So you should have let me railed off your pages and pages of achievement instead of getting all shy and embarrassed. <laughs> but I've, I've got some time left to run and I'm very happy doing those. So that's great. Um, uh, if other things are offered to me that I think I'm capable of doing when I come to the end of the term of any of those, any or all of those, of course, yeah. I'll give them consideration. But for the time being, I'm, I'm doing things I really love and really happy doing them so that's what the future is for yeah uh, just wow. to the best of my ability wow well I've got one last question for you now relationships 
you've been married for a long time. Yes. You don't have to tell us how long. Very, <laughs> very long. I just wonder, you know, what do you think is the key to a happy relationship, a happy marriage, family life, whatever? Gosh, mutual respect and giving time to each other is really critical. It, gosh, it's a, that's a really difficult one because... Yeah, it's a work in progress, right? It's a work in progress, exactly, exactly. Um, we, we, we share each other's interests and... Um, we're mutually supportive of each other but also I have to say we share the tasks at home as well and that's really important because if one person is desperately juggling with all of the domestic tasks as well as their day job yes and they're going to be just you know completely exhausted and probably a little bit resentful mm. so the best way to be able to have and spend time with each other quality time with each other is also to share the, the domestic tasks so that they don't get on top of anyone. So, you know, for example, even a basic rule, like the one who cooks is not the one who clears up afterwards. Up. Oh yeah, we have that. Um, yeah. It's just enormously helpful because there's no, there's no discussion about it. It's just sort of an unwritten rule. And, you know, just so we, we, we share the, the, the domestic chores, um, but also just because we, we're sufficiently, alike we actually like each other and that's really important <laughs> it's just, you know do you as people get on um which is just really critically important um so there's yeah there's the love but there's also there's also just liking each other as people which is just so hugely important um yeah essential absolutely so in other words you're marrying your best friend yeah really just the best thing ever and there are times when obviously you know you could happily throw something at, at, at your partner but, <laughs> but at the end of it you've got to think to yourself actually I won't throw that because I actually really like this person and I'm really glad that with you know, that this person's in my life so it's about it it's it's so much to do with mutuality mutual respect mutual support yeah and sharing it's just yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, I was waiting for him to come in a moment and interrupt and say, what? We don't like each other at all after all these years. <laughs> yeah, there is the tempting fate bit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I'm just joking. Says, so what have you done all day, you lazy? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Well, lockdown showed us some of that, but that's a different, you know, we're all working. But um, Margaret, it's been so wonderful um, to interview you on this podcast and hear about your career in law uh, and the wonderful tips and advice and guidance that you've given us. Thank you so much for talking law with me. It's been a huge pleasure and thank you very much for asking me. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. A big thank you to Margaret Casley Hayford, CBE or Talking Law with me, Sally Penny, MBE, in this interview. Thanks again to CBRE for supporting this episode. Do visit cbre.com to find out more about the work they do across the world. If you'd like to support Talking Law podcast, then please get in touch. Give me a follow on Twitter at SallyPenny1. Do make sure you catch up with previous episodes of Talking Law 
where you can hear my interviews with guests such as award-winning business, lawyer and managing partner Tamara Box from Root Smith and human rights barrister Adam Wagner from Doughty Street Chambers. Before I go, just a reminder about the Women in the Law UK annual dinner and conference. And don't forget to watch my tech talk. Thanks to our production team, Sam Walker and Michael Blaze at What Goes On Media. Bye for now.